Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is The Norman Invasion, Part 21, The Battle for Connacht. In the last episode, we began what is the final phase of the invasion, one that will last decades. We saw the Normans progress into the southwest of Ireland, where they exploited internal divisions across Munster to expand their presence in the region. Now we move to the crucible of Gaelic power, the Kingdom of Connacht, where events will echo what happened in Munster. The Normans will seek to exploit internal divisions in the Kingdom of Connacht to their own advantage. However, there's one major difference. The Norman encroachment in Munster was comparatively bloodless. The situation in Connacht was the exact opposite. By the end of today's show, the Kingdom will be in ruins as warfare sweeps across the region. Before we tuck into this show, I'm delighted to announce I am organising another tour on Saturday, August 15th. This tour will take you to places many of you have never been before. Firstly, we will head to Loch Crew in Meath. This is a site similar to Newgrange Megalithic Passage Tomb, but is much less crowded and you get a real feel for the place as it's not thronged with tourists. It's a truly remarkable place with a history that, that stretches back 5,000 years. It's even older than the pyramids and a really fascinating and intriguing place. Then we will head cross-country to a real favourite spot of mine, Castle Roach, which I will mention later on in the show. Then finally we'll visit Monastery Boyce, an early Christian monastery with some of the most exquisite examples of high crosses in Ireland. We will take the day at a leisurely pace, leaving Dublin at 10am by private coach and returning at about 6pm. We are offering an introductory offer of only €35 for the entire day. This offer will only last a week or two, after which seat prices will return to the normal price of €40. If you want to get your seat now, contact me at booking at irishhistorytours.ie. That's booking at irishhistorytours.ie. Now, let's get into the show. The Kingdom of Connacht was ruled by the O'Connors, the most powerful family in Ireland since the 1150s. Indeed, Rory O'Connor 
had been the last High King of Ireland before the Normans arrived. The key figure in today's show is a man who has been mentioned in previous episodes, but only as a peripheral character. This is Cahal Crowderg, or Cahal of the Red Hand O'Connor. His name, Red Hand, arose from a distinctive birthmark that covered his left hand. Brother to the High King Rory O'Connor, Cahal was somewhat of an unusual figure. By the late 1180s, he had risen to be an increasingly powerful member of the O'Connor family, which in itself was an unusual occurrence, given his brother Rory had already been king. As we have seen on countless occasions, it was customary in Gaelic Ireland for a king to imprison, mutilate or kill his other male siblings on coming to power to remove them as a threat. However, when Cahal's brother Rory had come to power in 1156, Cahal had only been a five-year-old child. He had been born in 1151, with his mother probably dying in childbirth. Therefore, when Rory succeeded their father in 1156 and began to imprison and blind his brothers, he obviously didn't regard the young Cahal as a threat. Cahal was really of a different generation to Rory, as he was at least 20 years his junior. As Cahal grew up, he watched his brother navigate the twists and turns of the early years of the Norman invasion. As Rory O'Connor maintained the family's power in Connacht, kingdoms surrounding them collapsed. For Cahal, a moment of truth arrived in 1183, when Rory took a very unusual step and abdicated as king and retired to a monastery. However, on that occasion, Cahal wasn't really in a position to challenge for power, and it was Rory's son Connor who succeeded his father. Having commanded his father's armies, Connor was in a strong position, and challenging him would not have gotten Cahal very far. However, the situation in Connacht, as we saw in part 19, was blown wide open in 1185, when Rory, disagreeing with his son and heir Connor's aggressive policy towards the Normans, re-emerged from retirement and tried to take back power from his son. Connor naturally resisted and war broke out. In the upheaval that followed, Cahal, a shrewd man, sensed that this was his moment. It was his right to stake a claim under Gaelic law. Anyone whose grandfather had been king could do so, and amidst the chaos, he became an increasingly powerful contender. While he did enter the fray as a third contender between Rory and Rory's son Connor, he failed to make a massive impact and ultimately it was the younger man, Connor, who emerged victorious, finally defeating his father. However, Connor didn't last long in power. In 1189, while he seemed to be going from strength to strength, this young king was assassinated. Tragic as this was, Cahal of the Red Hand hardly wept for his nephew. His death was an opportunity and a chance for Cahal to gain power. Indeed, I should say it is possible that Cahal might have had some involvement in Connor's death. It was, after all, orchestrated by a man who was a former ally of Cahal's. Whether he was involved or not, Connor's death created a power vacuum in Connacht, one that Cahal was ready to step into. As one of the most senior members of the O'Connor family, he had a strong claim. This was matched by the fact that he was still only in his late thirties. For bystanders, it definitely seemed that this man's hour had come. However, there was no doubt he would face rivals. Indeed, as Cahal laid his claim, another faction of the family offered the title of king to his brother Rory again. However, Rory's claim was almost farcical at this point. 
He had retired once already and tried to take back the throne after this. He had failed and had been exiled. Now nearing 70, he was coming back to take a third shot at becoming king. This was not exactly someone Cahal needed to fear and he successfully took the crown. But there was more serious contenders than Rory lurking in the background as we shall see next. In 1189, Cahal of the Red Hand was successfully inaugurated as King of Connacht, but he unquestionably ruled over a divided land. While the Normans were conquering territory left, right and centre around him, he still faced internal problems. Rory, his brother, was still at large, but more worryingly, the son of the recently assassinated Connor, a man called Carach O'Connor, was emerging as a force in his own right and a potential rival. Indeed, while Cahal had been busy securing the throne in 1189, Carach had shown himself capable by avenging his father's death and murdering his killers. Predictably, this young man, who was Cahal's grandnephew, rose against him in 1190. Fearing renewed warfare across Connacht, peace talks were called and in that summer the two men, Carach and Cahal, met at the monastery of Clonfirth for talks aimed at bringing the conflict to an end. However, at this monastery, situated in a meander of the Shannon River near Athenryan County Galway, even the presence of the Archbishop of Armagh, who oversaw the talks, could not resolve the enmity between the two men. It's easy to see why. Cahal saw Carach as a man who sought to depose him, while Carach probably suspected Cahal of having some part in his father's death. As the talks broke up and warfare loomed again, chance nearly intervened to bring the conflict to a sudden end. Cahal of the Red Hand left Clonfirth by sailing up the Shannon River with many of his close supporters with him. While on open water on Loch Ree, a ferocious storm blew up. The fleet was scattered and many prominent noble supporters of Cahal, including his own son, were drowned. While Cahal of the Red Hand himself survived, many across Connacht would live to rue this day, given what followed. Despite tensions rumbling on between himself and Carach, the Red Hand emerged as an increasingly dominant figure in Connacht in the 1190s. In 1191, he was rid of one niggling problem, his ageing brother Rory. The fact that Rory, once one of the most powerful men in Ireland, was not even present at the peace negotiations in Clanfort in 1190, illustrated that he was no longer a serious contender in Connacht. Nevertheless, this did not stop him making one final play for power. In 1191, he appealed to the Gaelic-Irish kings of Ulster. Then, on failing to receive a positive response there, he went to his Norman in-laws in Meath. He had married his daughter into the de Lacy family. Unsurprisingly, they had little interest either in backing a man who was clearly a fading star. This failed attempt to raise an army ended Rory O'Connor's political ambitions forever. Cahill, realising he was a busted flush, allowed Rory to return to Connacht later in the year on the condition that he entered the Monastery of Kong, which he did, never to engage in politics again. This simplified the dispute over the throne of Connacht, now down to two main contenders, Cahill and his grandnephew Carach. But this would not be easily resolved. In fact, their dispute would last over a decade and tee Connacht up for a Norman invasion. Indeed, while these internal struggles rumbled on, with no resolution in sight, the big political issue that was of much greater importance in the long term was how Cahill, as King of Connacht, would relate to the Normans. 
This was a thorny question for any Gaelic leader, one that could be and had been the ruin of many a king. It had been the reason Rory had fought his son Connor and triggered the wars of succession in Connacht. Rory had favoured peaceful coexistence at any price. Connor had preferred resistance. Cahal, now as king, needed his own policy, fast. As we saw in the last episode, in 1194, the king of Thomond, Donal O'Brien, had died. This led to a rapid Norman takeover of land in that kingdom, which was situated on Connacht's southern frontier. With Connacht so obviously divided, the Norman conquerors quickly began to look north from Thomond with the idea of penetrating this kingdom that had successfully defeated several previous attempts. It was around this time that the Norman authorities gave the first indication that they would support an invasion of Connacht when William Burke, a Norman adventurer who had received lands in and around Limerick, secured a speculative grant for a conquest of Connacht. While this grant was a very different thing from an actual invasion, Connacht was now clearly on the Norman chopping block. Cahill needed to respond, but would it be through war or peace? We shall see next. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, let's get back to the show. In 1195, William Burke and several other Normans began to move into North Tipperary and territory surrounding Limerick. This region had traditionally been viewed by the O'Connors as their sphere of influence. O'Connor kings had long meddled in Munster and its politics, seeking to keep the Gaelic kings there divided in fear that a major challenger might emerge on their doorstep. The arrival of the Normans in the region was a fulfilment of this fear. If this was not enough cause for alarm, in 1195, as we saw before the break, William Burke was granted a speculative grant by the royal authorities for an invasion of Connacht. This provocative act seems to have dictated Cahill's initial response to the Normans in 1195. Unsurprisingly, there was an explosion of violence in the west of Ireland as Cahill of the Red Hand fired a salvo across the Norman bow. To do this, he launched a massive raid into Munster from South Connacht, cutting deep into Norman territory, reaching Cashel and destroying several castles along the route. However, at this point, deep tensions within Norman Ireland emerged. In this raid, the annals of the Four Masters reveal that Cahill was joined 
by the Norman, Gilbert de Angelo, along with several other settlers from Mead. For this, de Angelo would be declared a rebel and lose his territories. However, his actions were the first indication of a deep split emerging within Norman Ireland as various rival factions sought to control the Kingdom of Connacht. One way or another, however, Cahill's raid in 1195 became the source of great anticipation with the annals of Inish Fallon claiming everyone expected that he would destroy all the foreigners. While he did destroy several castles, these were rebuilt. Cahill pledged to return to Munster and carry on this war he had started. But before he could do this, events elsewhere overtook these plans. Back in Connacht, Cahill faced a revolt from a minor house, the MacDermots. While he was mopping up this, word arrived that a major Norman host, led by the prominent noble, the self-appointed Prince of Ulster, John de Courcy, had arrived at Shannon, seeking talks with him. The Normans were worried about the ramification of an explosion of warfare in the West and wanted to negotiate with Cahill. At the following meeting in Athlone, de Courcy acknowledged Cahill as King of Connacht in return for peace. This was significant as it seemed to indicate that any invasion was off the table, in the short term at least. However, the events of 1195 had indicated that the future in Connacht and indeed Ireland was going to be increasingly complex. As the Normans began to circle around Connacht, the unity that they had once shown was rupturing. Increasingly, no one could predict how any of the various forces in Ireland would act. Normans would no longer necessarily support Normans, and as we have seen, the Gaelic Irish certainly felt little loyalty to each other. Indeed, a few years later, as the 12th century drew to a close, and warfare broke out again between various factions within the O'Connor family, this was abundantly clear. much of the 1190s, Cahill of the Red Hand had faced few challenges from within his own family. In 1198, his defeated and vanquished brother, Rory O'Connor, perhaps the most important Gaelic figure in the entire invasion series so far, died in the Abbey of Cong. While his memory was somewhat tarnished by his poor judgment and equally poor attempts to seize back power in his later years, he had been nevertheless one of the most powerful O'Connor kings in history. Certainly no one would ever equal his achievements again. While Rory left the stage, Carroch O'Connor remained Cahill of the Red Hand's main rival. Carroch had been a thorn in Cahill's side for most of the 1190s and indeed by 1199 he had been exiled. However, in that final year of the 12th century, Cahill invited him back, granting him lands in Connacht. This act had the potential to heal the deadly rift in the O'Connor family and provide internal peace and outward unity for the trying times that unquestionably lay ahead. However, no sooner had he done this than Cahill began to plot against Carrach in the year 1200. This led to one of the most destructive and chaotic wars Ireland had ever seen. Arguably one of the worst chapters since the Norman Conquest had begun. Why exactly Cahill decided to move against his grandnephew is not clear, but it seems it was a completely unprovoked move. In the end, the attack couldn't have gone worse. Word of the attack was somehow leaked to Carroch, who got his people away to safety. Despite hunting him down, Cahill's forces failed to capture or kill his rival. Desperate, Carroch now fled, seeking help and military aid from a man who was more than happy to inflame tensions within the Kingdom of Connacht. This was a Norman, William Burke. 
Burke, as we saw earlier, was a Norman adventurer who had been granted a speculative grant for Connacht, so he was more than willing to get involved. In 1200, Carroch, supported by William Burke, returned to Connacht to take the throne. The price of the following war on the people was deadly. As William Burke and Carroch pushed up through the kingdom, the annals of Loch Key recalled that they left neither church nor territory from the Shannon westwards to the sea that they did not pillage and destroy, so that neither church nor altar nor priest nor monk nor canon afforded protection against this demonical host. The campaign was marked by one atrocity after another. The annals of Loch Key continued. Never before was there inflicted on the Connacht men any punishment of famine, nakedness and plundering like this. Cahill of the Red Hand could do nothing but flee, and he headed north out of Connacht into Ulster. In his absence, Carrach was crowned king, but now he was a king reliant on a Norman who himself was seeking to take over the entire kingdom. The invasion, albeit an indirect one, had begun as the Normans had their tentacles around Connacht. Cahill of the Red Hand, himself now needing allies, enlisted the support of the O'Neills of Ulster, one of the most powerful Irish families on the island. In 1201 he began probing North Connacht with raids and eventually a large hosting of all the major families of Ulster joined him in a full invasion of the Kingdom of Connacht to reinstate Cahill as king. However, not long after they crossed the frontier, a dispute arose between the King of Western Ulster and Cahill. It appears Cahill had not told the northern kings that William Burke was supporting Carrach. After this dispute, the invasion force began to break up. But as soon as Burke and Carrach got wind of this division, they quickly marched their forces north and fell on the divided forces, defeating them. In the end, the situation was dire. A. O'Neill, the king of Western Ulster, was forced to submit and hand over hostages to Carrach. This debacle left Cahill of the Red Hand in an even worse position. In this moment of desperation, he now took a step that he can only have known was dangerous. He approached the Norman, John de Courcy, for aid. Despite the fact Carroch O'Connor was supported by William Burke and the Normans in Munster, John de Courcy, himself a Norman, was quick to lend aid to Cahill. However, adventurers at heart, his Normans wanted land in Connacht in return for this support. As battle loomed between Carroch O'Connor and Cahill of the Red Hand in 1201, there was now Normans fighting on both sides. It was clear no matter who won, the Norman conquest of Connacht was underway. Carrock fled away from the invasion of John de Courcy, but he was eventually tracked down to a forest where he and his forces were camped outside the town of Gort in Galway. As they approached the tree line, de Courcy and his Norman knights and riders dismounted and began to walk through the trees. Eventually they found Carrock's camp, but it was abandoned. However, as they were about to return to their horses, they were ambushed by Carrock's army, who had been lying in wait. In the trees, the Normans' heavy armour was more of a nuisance than a help. In what can only have been a chaotic battle, Carrock's forces emerged victorious. Seriously rattled, the Normans now began a hasty withdrawal north across Connacht with Cahill of the Red Hand. When they reached Loch Ree, they began to transport the army across the lake and out of Connacht to the safety of the Lordship of Meath. Carrach, seeing his enemy in disarray, followed north and fell on them before the evacuation could be completed and the defeat was terrible. For Cahill of the Red Hand, 1201 had been a disaster from start to finish. 
While he managed to escape the carnage on the west bank of Loch Ree, he was arrested by the Normans as a surety for their wages he had promised them before the attack. The entire excursion had clearly been a disaster. John de Courcy, the Norman leader, had to go to Dublin to explain himself and why he had just invaded Connacht. As 1201 drew to a close, it finally seemed the internal tension in Connacht and the O'Connor family had come to an end as Carragh seemed unassailable. Cahill had been beaten twice that summer and more importantly he would not be able to find more allies. He was a busted flush. However, it was in this moment of his greatest despair that Cahill of the Red Hand was saved by the most unlikely of people. While the O'Connors were weakening their own kingdom with each passing year of violence, they were not immune from events happening elsewhere either. In 1199, King Richard the Lionheart had died and was succeeded by his notorious brother, John. King John, by 1201, for reasons not entirely clear to anyone except himself, decided that Cahill of the Red Hand was the rightful King of Connacht, and more importantly, that all Normans in Ireland had to support him. This resulted in one of the most unlikely alliances, where William Burke, a man instrumental in the rise of Carragh to the kingship, now sided with Cahill in 1202 to bring him down. This resulted in another extremely violent summer in the west of Ireland as William Burke unleashed mayhem on the kingdom. His army rampaged up through Connacht, reaching the Monastery of Boyle in North Roscommon. Basing themselves there for three days, they tracked down Carrick O'Connor and killed him in the Curlew Mountains. While this brought an end to the dispute between Cahill of the Red Hand on the one side and Carrick on the other, the misery of the people of Connacht was set to continue. Cahill had promised to reward Burke and his army for their support and the Norman leader was not willing to leave Connacht without his pay. So through the summer of 1202 he billeted his troops across the kingdom of Connacht. However, while the Norman forces were dispersed staying in the houses of Gaelic Irish leaders a rumour spread that Burke was dead. Unsurprisingly, given the trauma inflicted on the people of Connacht in the previous years of war, this triggered a revolt and hundreds of Burke's forces were murdered in the houses in which they were billeted. Whether Cahill himself was involved is not clear, but Burke certainly suspected that he was. Once he escaped back to his lands in Limerick, he began to plot vengeance. In 1203, despite having killed Carrick O'Connor the previous year, he now formed common cause with Carrick's sons who were seeking vengeance against Cahill. All logic in this conflict seemed to have disappeared. Cahill of the Red Hand, having seen the destructive force of the Normans, knew withdrawal at this point was the best policy and simply refused to fight Burke. However, on this occasion, the Norman was not just interested in raiding. He had been granted Connacht in 1195 and he now decided the time had come to make good on this grant. In 1203, the first Norman castle was erected in O'Connor territory at Meleek. Just as it seemed, settlement was inevitable. King John's officials intervened for a second time to save Cahill's neck. King John, who we will cover in future shows, was one of the most erratic and paranoid kings to sit on the English throne. He was increasingly wary of Burke's rise and his potential conquest of even part of the vast expanses of the Kingdom of Connacht gave John, and indeed his representative in Ireland, Mayor Fitzhenry, reasons for suspicion. Burke was rebuked severely by Fitzhenry and then sent to England for an audience with the King which brought his settlement of Connacht to an end. 
While he was cleared of any wrongdoing, Connacht was taken from him and the O'Connors were able to demolish the castle of Meleek. While Burke had travelled to England, back in Ireland the King's representative had entered negotiations with Cahill of the Red Hand. The Gaelic King was in a weak position undoubtedly. He was now ruling over a kingdom that was in ruins. Since 1199 the region had been almost constantly at war and he was in part responsible. Also, given the levels of Norman intervention, it was obvious to all that Cahill was only ruling the kingdom because the Normans wanted him to. They could remove him at any moment if they chose to. This weakness was reflected in a series of agreements Cahill made with the royal authorities in Ireland between 1203 and 1205. While these stabilised Connacht in the short term, Cahill surrendered all land in his kingdom to King John as his overlord. He received one-third of Connacht back as a vassal of John's and the remaining two-thirds he continued to hold as a traditional Irish king. John also retained a vital strip of territory around one of the key fords or crossing points of the Shannon River at Atlone. There he would build a massive fortification which would allow the Normans attack into Connacht if necessary. Cahill or indeed anyone was seriously mistaken if they thought this deal might save Connacht in the long term. Ultimately, the kingdom, as it had been for centuries, was no more. Its independence was gone, and in many ways the great battles of conquest were already over. The O'Connors were clearly divided and beaten. They accepted John as their king, and therefore could not claim to be the high kings as they had in the past. They were now only ruling at the whim of the King of England. It was only a matter of time before the Norman lords of Ireland put pressure on to settle the region with Normans. That, however, would take a lot longer than people expected in 1205. In the next show, we will move on to Ulster and look at events there in the 1190s. And then, in the following show, we will look at the Norman regions of Mead and Denster and how they fared in these years. Until next time, Sláin. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.